listening to Movie Land on ABC Local Radio, digital and online. Hello and welcome to Movie Land. I'm CJ Johnson. Thank you for joining me. It's the 4th of April 2017 as I record this. I hope you got my review episode that I posted on the 1st of April 2017 with my review of My Bodyguard starring Dwayne Johnson, the artist formerly known as The Rock and Meryl Streep. It was, of course, an April Fool's Day gag. I hope you enjoyed it, whether or not you believed the movie to be a real one or whether you realised it was not. Either way, April Fool, happy April Fool's Day from me to you. I love doing an April Fool's Day gag. The one I did uh, the previous year, the for April Fool's Day 2016, I hope you remember that one, where I introduced this actress, Karen Menzies, in Los Angeles, this ex-home-and-away star in Los Angeles, living this terrible life in Los Angeles, drinking all day. She'd been in, like, 11 pilots or something, none of which had gone to series. It was actually an improv I did with a friend of mine over there named Sophie Webb. Find that one and have a listen to that one from the previous April Fool's Day, if you like that vibe. Anyway, I'm going to follow that up with some reviews, lots of reviews. It's a review episode with a lot of reviews for upcoming movies that are opening over the next few weeks, certainly here in Australia and possibly where you are in the world. Uh, France, F-R-A-N-T-Z, or France, 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 Ghost in the Shell, Colossal, and Their Finest. So a whole bunch of wonderful films that are opening over the next few weeks. Uh, Ghost in the Shell is open right now worldwide. Hasn't done very well in the United States. I think is doing better internationally. Rupert Sanders' adaptation of the manga anime TV series franchise Ghost in the Shell is almost shockingly strange, disquieting, melancholic, creepy and sad. For a big studio, extremely expensive, bus stop and billboard advertised piece of mainstream entertainment, it feels astonishingly personal, authentic and artsy. It doesn't smell mainstream at all. Sanders has gotten away with sneaking personality and a Hollywood product before, with 2012's Snow White and the Huntsman, which was creepier and more interesting than it had any right to be. His career is rather astonishing. Snow White and the Huntsman was his first feature film, and this is his second. It's like he got to pilot the jumbo without ever having to fly the Cessnock. But it's deserved. He has an insightful eye and a true sense of mood. Besides an extraordinary visual effects team, his essential collaborator here is Scarlett Johansson, playing a cyborg. More specifically, a totally robotic body housing a totally human brain known as Major, who, considered a weapon, is deployed to fight cyber-terrorism in a murky, rainy and hyper-commercialised future, lovingly and liberally referencing the cityscapes of 1982's Blade Runner. Johansson, who must be about as in-demand an A-list movie star as it's possible to be, has chosen to devote a huge chunk of her recent career to playing extraordinary beings whose resemblance to human beings is only skin deep. Literally so here, and in 2014's Under the Skin, and also in 2014's Lucy, and as Black Widow in the ongoing Marvel Studios' Avengers franchise. In all of these films, Johansson demonstrates herself as a gifted and bold physical performer, making striking choices with her posture, her limbs, her gait, but it is in Under the Skin, and again here, that she approaches the uncanny. 
In both films, she fully commits through brave physical choices to playing a non-human. Alicia Vikander pulled it off too in 2015's Ex Machina, but I can't think of any other current movie star making a deliberate habit of this kind of work. Some action stars may give robotic performances, but that's something else entirely. Again, in the context of a massive studio movie designed to make money, Johansson's performance, which works completely, is audacious. Her cyborg owes its strange gait more than a little to the animated portrayal in the 1995 feature anime film, but is filled with vulnerability, pathos and pain. She is a tragic figure. The film owes Blade Runner more than credit for inspiring its production design. The underlying material obviously owes a huge debt on a story and thematic level to that film and its source material, Philip K. Dick's Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? The emotional core of this film, as of Ridley Scott's classic, centres on the pain cyborgs slash androids feel when they are forced to encounter the boundaries of their humanity. It's a very rich vein, encompassing concepts of second-class citizenry, genetic engineering, artificial intelligence, robotic warfare, and, somehow most obliquely and obviously, class. We've seen it before, and we've seen it better, but it's closer to our IRL, that is, in-real-life situation, than ever before. Unfortunately, storytelling is Ghost in the Shell's weakest attribute. For the first act, it's practically impenetrable. But the mood, the visuals, the style and the performances are utterly compelling and in an age of CGI marvels, pun kind of intended, manage to feel original and grown up. Johansson's compelling creation is supported by similarly ambitious performances from Pilu Asbek and Beat Takeshi Kitano. Aspect in particular finds, like Johansson, great pain and sadness in augmented humanity. He gets some sort of visual robotics hardwired onto his face, expanding his visual capabilities, but then complains to Major that he finds it tricky to drive with them. It's a sad, strange moment, but it carries a lot of weight. As we all revel in our new digital lives, how often do we realise that for everything we're gaining, we're also constantly giving things up? That is Ghost in the Shell. And that is playing now on cinema screens worldwide. But as I say, if you're listening in the United States, go see it soon because it's not doing very well there. So it probably won't last that long. Now from the sublime to the kind of ridiculous, Colossal, which is opening soon around the world, perhaps trying to be edgy, alternative, hip, cool, anything other than Oscar winning for singing a brutally beautiful song in Les Miserables, Anne Hathaway has made a spectacularly misguided career decision in agreeing to star in Colossal, a rampaging misfire of a movie. What may have seemed like a deliriously different project on paper emerges on screen as a sullen, weirdly dated, anti-date flick, a film for no one with a message no one wants. It starts like any old, emphasis on old, chick flick rom-com, Hathaway's Gloria, being out of work in the Big Apple, is drinking too much, has been tossed out of her groovy loft by her dapper English boyfriend, Dan Stevens, and is headed back to her old house upstate to get her shit together, where she meets old school friend and now handsome and nice and very available Oscar, Jason Sudeikis. Then things get weird, but weird bad, not weird cool.
So I guess there are spoilers ahead. Well, not really, because the posters give away the thing that happens in the film. But anyway, so far, so rom-com. But the first act, Turning Point, sees Gloria discover that she's responsible for the huge sea lizard that's recently begun terrorising poor Seoul. Seoul, Korea. Yes, that is the concept of the movie. As I say, it's on the poster, it's in the trailer. When Oscar discovers he's hugely responsible, sorry, when Oscar discovers he's responsible for a similarly malignant giant robot, the stage should be set for a really quirky romance. But no. Instead, the film takes a very nasty turn and becomes not romantic, but an honest-to-goodness war between the sexes film, including physical fisticuffs, man-on-woman... Sadaikis, I suppose, shows range, but Oscar becomes reprehensible, and the entire second half of the film is a morose examination of his relentless and increasingly boring bullying of Gloria, including, as I've said, physical violence. There's no kiss and makeup in the stars for these two. This isn't Fifty Shades of Grey, more like The Burning Bed. It's also not a rival. I had a lot of problems with that film, but one thing it did extremely well was try to be realistic about how the world would react to an alien arrival. Colossal makes no such attempt, and even though it's not a monster movie per se, the lack of effort to even be a little believable shows contempt for the audience. There are a million plot holes, inconsistencies and logical absurdities, the biggest being that the good citizens of Seoul and their authority figures make no attempt to stay safe, such as by avoiding eating noodles and drinking coffee at exactly the time and place the huge beasts keep appearing and stepping on people. The film is obviously using the monsters as metaphors for alcoholism and domestic violence, the emphasis here being obviously. This is really ham-fisted, nail-hammering, on-the-nose stuff, as clunky and over-emphatic as this sentence. And when it all ends, the final line reveals a Gloria who may have learned nothing at all, making us the fools for wasting nearly two hours with her and her mean, awful, misogynistic friends. Salute, indeed. That's colossal. And as you can tell, I didn't like it much. Sip of coffee. You're listening to CJ Johnson with Movie Land. And don't forget, you can read these reviews, my written versions of these reviews, and subscribe to them, delivered to your inbox for free, for free. No ads, nothing else, just good reviews by going to filmmafia.com.au. That's my blog, filmmafia.com.au. I post all these reviews, very clutter-free, nice, simple template, nice, easy to read, good for you. Movie reviews, filmmafia.com.au. Over to the left, there's a subscribe button. Hit that button and you'll get notified when there's a new review. You'll join nearly 9,000 subscribers. Let's keep going. France, or France, F-R-A-N-T-Z, like Land of Mine, which I reviewed a few weeks ago, Francois Ozon's new film, France, examines, among other things, the nature of vengeance, recrimination, and forgiveness in the aftermath of a world war, this time the first one. But whereas Land of Mine is urgent, with a contemporary feel, Ozon's film, reaching further back in time, essentially a century, chooses to celebrate its story's sense of the past with formal construction, gentle pacing, and, for the most part, a monochromatic black-and-white palette. 
The images are often very, very striking. Ozon and his cinematographer Pascal Marti use strong contrast to achieve the blackest blacks, evident in the mourning clothes of the central family. And occasionally, the film slips dreamily into a faded colour, like that of early colour photographs. It appears, for the first act at least, to be art cinema with a capital A and to be approached as such. It's partially a remake of an Ernst Lubitsch film from 1932, Broken Lullaby, itself based on a 1930 play by Maurice Rostin, whose title I won't mention, as it gives something away in the context of the present film. The material must have seemed pretty pungent at the time, when war wounds were still raw, and distrust between France and Germany was still very much on the boil, now hopefully down to a simmer. Anna... Paula Beer, is mourning her fiancé, France, who was killed fighting in France. The name is obviously loaded. She lives with France's parents in their small German town, and she dutifully visits France's grave. One day, she notices a young man, Pierre Nini, a man of big face, laying fresh flowers there. And not only does he turn out to be French, not a good thing to be in a small German town at this time, but he seems to have a mission, and it involves her. The play and Lubitsch's film ended one way. Ozon adds essentially a second half. He also completely shifts the point of view. The original material followed the young Frenchman, but this is Anna's story. It's intriguing in a stately fashion, but cold. The material and its telling is resolutely tasteful and formal and almost completely lacking in passion. Ozon is still young, but for some reason he's gone and made an old man's film that is very, very pretty with little to say. It feels to a degree like an exercise in style, made more to satisfy an urge of Ozon's own rather than that of any contemporary audience. About halfway through Act 3, he references one of the most famous scenes in Casablanca from 1942, and I realised what I'd been watching all along a good old-fashioned, war-flavoured romantic melodrama, and in black and white, no less. That's France. That's got preview screenings this weekend across Australia. Opens the following Thursday, uh, and I think it's already playing in the United States. Not sure about Europe. Not sure about when it's currently playing in France, but that's France. Finally, opening in a few weeks in Australia at least, Their Finest, a new British film, from Lone Scherfig. Lone Scherfig, who is actually Danish, loves to fetishize Britishness. In her masterpiece from 2009, An Education, she presents a fabulous and slightly fantastic 1960s London. In 2014's The Riot Club, she gets right into the taffy and the toffee at the snootiest club within Oxford University. Now she gives us a dreamily romanticized London under the Blitz. It's suitable for a romantic and slightly ludicrous drama, as this is, but one can imagine the matte-painted, bombed-out streetscapes and central-cast old Londoners with war relief tins seeing Ken Roach, Danny Boyle, or... Sorry, Ken Loach. (laughs) Seeing Ken Loach, Danny Boyle, or anyone else with a penchant for grit or realism puking in the aisles. Bombings and bombing victims are rarely this pretty. 
That said, the subject of their finest is filmmaking, and during the course of the film, we see plenty of instances of the craft's artifice. So perhaps that of the film we're watching is highly deliberate. Indeed, there are a few times as we watch a film get made, and then that film, that film within a film, that the film, this one, seems to be going deliberately meta. But one cannot be sure, since the tone of the film itself seems unsteady. It is rocked off its hinges by a brutal shift in the third act. Until then, it's a very enjoyable romp through familiarly enjoyable territory. Katrin Cole, lovely and very period-friendly Gemma Arterton, is a Welsh cartoonist drafted into screenwriting for the Ministry of Information. She ends up writing The Women's Dialogue, and of course much more, for a propaganda picture first designed simply to boost morale, then elevated to being used as a direct entreaty to get the US to enter the war. The power of cinema, indeed. Unfortunately for her, the film and us, she also has to navigate a love triangle, which is completely unnecessary and stretches the film at least 25 minutes beyond breaking point. It's a pity, because much of the film, and certainly the premise, is great. Watching how digestible propaganda was made at the highest levels of the British war effort is fascinating, and one doesn't doubt the authenticity of all the scenes involving that activity's nuts and bolts. It's the love story that doesn't ring true. Incidentally, Bill Nye gives yet another perfect performance as an English actor. Lovely! That is their finest. And as I say, that doesn't open for a few weeks, I think, around the world. So that's it. Four reviews of four films that are either in cinemas or on their way. I hope you enjoyed those. As I say, you can read the written version of those by going to my blog, filmmafia.com.au. Also, if you haven't checked it out yet, check out my web TV series called Watch This. Uh, you'll also find reviews there, but also you find interviews and discussions. Uh, my semi-regular co-host Miriam Kappa and I discuss all sorts of things. There's an episode up recently about Ghost in the Shell. There's an episode about television, about Big Little Lies and Feud. <laughs> what do you think of Feud, by the way? If you're watching Feud, which is about the feud, supposedly between Betty Davis and Joan Crawford, that erupted on the set of Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, then um, let me know. I think it's a bit trying too hard to be camp, to actually be camp, and yet way, obviously, trying too hard to be camp, to be taken seriously as drama as well. So it's not funny, but it's not dramatically tense either it's just weird and but i guess it's colorful people kind of enjoying it and the subject matter the story is is quite fun uh, hit me up on the facebook uh conversation let me know what you think of any of these movies or a feud or a big little lies that uh facebook page is at cj movie land and twitter is the same at cj movie land obviously you're listening to this as a podcast but make sure you're a subscriber uh, to the podcast through iTunes. And while you're there, write and review, write a review about the show and give us a nice big five-star rating. That would be lovely. It does help more people discover the Movie Land podcast, which I do for the ABC. Take care, enjoy, have a fun weekend, but make sure you see a movie at the cinema this weekend. Thanks for listening to Movie Land. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at CJ Movie Land. 
read and subscribe for free to my written reviews at filmmafia.com.au. Watch my web TV series, Watch This, at Skippy TV. That's S-K-I-P-I dot TV. S-K-I-P-I dot TV. And make sure you see a movie at the cinema this weekend. Take care. Sure plays a mean game.